back from Revelation and uh, if you go through and you find Hebrews and you go a little bit further back, you'll soon come to Titus and Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, these were some of the last letters written by Paul, actually 2 Timothy I think probably was the last one. And uh, as I said last week, they reflect uh, a very close sort of mutual respect and friendship and mutual dependence even in a way between Timothy and Paul. Very close Christian relationship which teaches us a lot about the relationships between Christians and uh, we talked about that last week. This week I want to move on to the subject true or false. I want to talk about false doctrine and sound doctrine and we're going to read verses 3 to 11. So verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, and the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, or for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray for God to really speak to us out of this passage this morning. Then I want us, after that, we'll be having time, I hope, to to go back into worshipping together and maybe responding to some of the things God said to us. So let's, let's take a little time first in the Word. Let's pray for God's help. Holy Spirit, we welcome you amongst us. We thank you for your presence that we've already known in our worship. But we pray, Lord, through your Spirit, that you would be very present in the Word. I pray that this would live for us. This would be living food to our souls. I pray, Lord, that your word would be like a light to our path. You would not uh, allow us to stray from the path you have laid out for us, to stray into false ways. I pray you protect us from Satan's schemes. I pray you'd alert us to things that might be going wrong, even in our own thinking. And I pray, Lord, that you would establish us in your truth. And I pray that the fruit of your presence will come through, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Holy Spirit, I ask you to really work in us as we listen to the Word of God. Really minister into our lives this morning. I ask it for the glory of our Lord Jesus, that his church might be built, that his church might not be diverted from the the true course you've called her to. I ask that for your glory, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so 1 Timothy, uh, as perhaps you've already heard, not only from myself but from Dave two or three weeks earlier, 1 Timothy is a lot about the truth and it's about some false teaching that had got really a hold in Ephesus. 
which is where the church is, where Timothy has been left. That's from verse 3, pretty clear. Paul's moved on. Timothy's stayed in Ephesus, and Paul wants him to continue to sort out things there. Because on their last visit there, Paul and Timothy expected, I think, to find things okay. It was a healthy church. It had been vibrant and effective and very powerful church. But actually, they found it distracted and, uh, to some extent, knocked off course by false teaching. And the leaders of the church had been affected by this false teaching. In fact, two of the leaders of the church were teaching the false teaching. And Paul had to discipline them, put them out of fellowship, and, uh, and, and they're mentioned, actually, at the end of the chapter, as I said last week. Now, we don't know what the false teaching was, but we know enough from reading these letters to get an idea of the sort of problems it created. So let's just briefly think about those. The teachings affected people's behaviour. Prior to this, they had been a really godly, on fire for Jesus, quite a, 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 a sort of really motoring church. I don't know what word to use. They were, they were really going for God. It, it had grown very effectively and quickly. You can read the story of the Ephesian church in Acts 19. But undoubtedly, and the letter to the Ephesians, of course, is written to a church that clearly is, is, is clearly getting hold of Jesus. And it's, it's not a, the letter to the Ephesians is not a letter which is telling anybody off, like Galatians and Corinthians. They were obviously okay then. But somehow they've got knocked off course. And uh, their general behaviour has been affected. Their godliness has declined. Uh, lots of arguments and quarrels have sprung up. They're fighting with each other and arguing about things. There's a lot of pride and greed about in the church. And the false teachers seem to be very out to to get money, really, and uh, to exploit people's vulnerability. Here's another interesting one that's developed. Legalism has crept in where it wasn't. They've become very conscious of laws and codes that they think they have to follow in order to be right with God and to please God. And yet... Ironically, along with the laws and codes has come what's called syncretism. They've absorbed stuff from, the, from other cultures. They've absorbed Jewish uh, tendencies, some Jewish sort of codes and laws, which is behind some of the comments he makes. But they've also clearly absorbed some Greek and pagan ideas. And they've begun to mix them in with their Christian faith. They've made it into a mishmash where it was once clear. And that's created significant problems in the church. You know, false doctrines come and go through history, but it's quite amazing how they often are very similar. Very similar at the bottom anyway, when you get down to the root of it. And they have a similar fruit. They do undermine godliness. People no longer are focused on Jesus and his gospel. They do promote quarrels and, and arguments. They do often breed legalism, usually really. And when you really get into it, they are often syncretistic. They are building in ideas that aren't biblical. And people are trying to be maybe culturally relevant and they go too far. They absorb things from their culture. Or maybe they try and go back into the Old Testament and draw things out and get them out of covenant. Old Testament things are fine, but you need to know which covenant you're in. You're in the new covenant. And from the new covenant, you go back from the old and look at the, 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 sorry, from the new and look at the old and you learn all sorts of things. You can learn types and, and pictures of Jesus. You can learn some principles. There's a lot there about a man or a woman's walk with God. There's some wonderful things in the Old Testament, some stories about God's dealings with man. Tom read us one about Abraham this morning. Some massive things to learn, but it's not our covenant. 
It's not our rule book. It's not our law book. We are the people of God of the new covenant. And, and people often in false teaching mix up that. And get Old Testament scriptures and take them out of context, apply them to people today. Well, so it's still common. Now, false teaching tends to produce sickly Christians. Christians who are bound up, bound by fear. Christians who are emotionally deformed. Christians who are perpetually involved in petty arguments about phrases and meanings. Whereas... Healthy teaching, sound means healthy, sound teaching produces healthy Christian lives. I have a very deep conviction, which I believe is biblical, that you, if you can teach the word of God clearly and accurately, you will have healthy believers. It's like a healthy diet. We're all into diet stuff now. We understand it. A lot of what we eat affects us. You are what you eat sometimes. And, and really, it's a bit similar spiritually. If you are having sound doctrine, if you're teach, taught the word of God correctly or soundly, you will generally be healthy. We need to just know what that means. And we're going to try and look at that a bit this morning. And I think there is still a need for us to be very astute and careful about the teaching we hear. I would say that there are a couple of things that might even have a specific uh, challenge for us today. I want to talk for a moment about two areas where we should judge teaching. Now these are, are, are basic principles, but I think they create, which, sorry, our culture creates a challenge in this area. I'll try and explain what I mean. The first one I want to mention is that we should be able to assess the life of the teacher. So that's the first point I want to make. This is something that comes through in the New Testament. That the fruit in the life of a teacher of the word of God, or, the, or, the, or a prophet for that matter, is a very important factor in how seriously you take notice of what they say. So this is true of, of, of ministry generally. If people prophesy over you, or prophesy to a church, but their lives are in a mess, you really don't have to take it very seriously, to be honest. Now, if people teach the word of God, and their lives are not in any sense living up to a sort of biblical model... That also undermines their teaching. But we have a problem today. Today we have a lot of teaching which comes via modern technology. We have the television, God TV. Now, I I think there's some good stuff on it. Well, I've been on it once. Did you know that? Uh, And uh, Terry Vergas on there and lots of other good people. But it is pretty distant from us. We also have the internet. And people are always downloading sermons from here and there. People come and tell me, oh, I've been looking at, you know, Harry Blowfly in, you know, Louisiana, who's teaching on, you know, the five toes of Daniel's image. Uh, people don't often tell me that sort of thing, but I do hear that sort of thing. And, and you actually think, hang on a minute, all across the board, it could be internet, could be God TV, could be videos, DVDs, magazines, books. They're all distant. Our whole modern world means that we get a lot of stuff that we have no idea what the people teaching it are like. Now, that doesn't mean you don't listen to it, but it means you listen to it with a caution in your spirit. You don't just absorb stuff. I mean, it can look really impressive, can't it? Of course it does. I looked impressive probably when I was preaching on the Brighton platform and you saw me on TV. Not quite so impressive in the flesh. And actually... 
it's, you just got to be careful. It's not to say you don't do it, but it's, it is an, uh, an inevitable danger of our day and age. I can remember when I was quite young, my dad, who was a godly leader in the church, in a more traditional setting, started getting a magazine, which he found really quite good, he quite enjoyed. It was called The Plain Truth. Anybody ever heard of The Plain Truth? And, and it was years ago when I was a teenager. And, he started getting, and my dad was reading it. And I remember I was a teenager and I looked at it. I thought, I'm not sure. I said, Dad, I mean, my dad knew the Bible. I said, are you sure this is okay? I mean, you know nothing about it. It seems very good. But it actually was all Old Testament. It, it, the prophetic stuff is what caught my dad, you know, the interpreting Old Testament prophecies. It was really nothing about Jesus at all when you really got down to it. And nothing about the church. But you, what you've got is this nice glossy magazine with some really interesting stuff in it. But you haven't got a clue about the organisation. Now, I think the organisation behind it, Garner Ted Armstrong, wasn't it? Was it? Or somebody like that. Who ran it for America. I think it... Thank you, Peter. Yeah, it was Garner Ted Armstrong. I, th- I, I don't, mustn't speak publicly because I don't know what happened. But I think the whole thing is not on, going on today. And, and, and I think, you know, there were some serious problems out there, as far as I understand. I think some of them have... Come, come clear of, of some of the more uh, uh, extreme teachings. I'm sure things have moved on. But it was an example of how you can have s- something and read it, it looks good, and you have not a clue about the life or the fruit in those who are making the teaching. Now, by way of contrast, your local church leaders, like yours truly, you can see all my warts without any problem. I'm not going to show you them all. But you can see all my problems without any trouble. You can see the mistakes I make. Some of you could list them for me quite effectively, I'm sure. You can see my foibles. And so you can think, oh, that's old John, you know, he forgets things. He doesn't remember my name. He, he gets in a muddle when he's making decisions. You know, whatever. And, and you can think, oh, that's, but this guy on the television, look at that in that flashy suit. He knows the business. This is the real McCoy. We, this is the good stuff. You don't know what's going on. Now, you do know from history that sometimes there are massive collapses, moral collapses in these ministries. And sometimes really weird stuff goes on. It is a definite vulnerability. You should treat, I'm going to say this up front, you should treat the teaching you get from the bloke you know and can assess more important than the teaching you get secondhand at a distance. So what I say is more important than what you see on TV and on the internet. There you go. I don't often... I don't often I'm not pushing myself. I'm saying it's so easy to be there with the bloke you know and all in and think, but that is part of the validity of it that you know me. Now, if I really go off the rails, and sadly that does happen to local church leaders, you should take no notice of me as well. But at least you can see what's happening to my rails. And therefore you're able to assess something of the teaching. Now that is a qualitative good thing. That's how the New Testament expects you to operate. And in this modern day and age, so much of that distant stuff needs to be treated just that whole degree more cautious. I like listening to things like that. I also listen to DVDs and read magazines and read books. But I think I've learned over the years just to always have that element of caution about it. Not to be silly, but to remember that one of the tests of teaching and of true sound doctrine is you have some idea of the life and ministry of the person teaching. Then the next thing that we judge is we must assess what the teaching produces in the lives of those who follow that teaching. So when these people, you know, the the devotees of a particular teaching, what is it producing in their lives? Is it producing faith? Is it producing love? 
Is it producing a freedom in the spirit? Is it producing holiness, the fruit of the spirit? Is it producing a desire, for example, to engage in mission in the world? Is it producing an evangelistic desire? Does this teaching produce a desire to tell people about Jesus? Does it produce a desire to to be engaged in reaching the nations? Is there a Christ-like attractiveness to these followers? Do they have a heart for the lost? Are they concerned with the name of Jesus? We mustn't be naive and blind. We need to look at the churches being produced by a sort of teaching. Now, I'm, yeah, I can't help it. I just say what I think. I think we need to be not too gullible in our day and age, not only about the obvious cultic stuff, but about other things. Let me give you an example. Sometimes there's too much respect for liberal theology. What do liberal theology churches do not produce? Lots of people saved, lots of people going on in the kingdom of God. And sometimes you find Christians that get really into this, even good Christians, and, and, you know, and you've got to think, well, look, let's stop for a minute and look at churches that, that are strong in what we might call modern and liberal theology, and what is the fruit? Is it producing a New Testament uh, uh, a manifestation of the kingdom of God. You say, well, it's a bit cheeky. Yeah, it is cheeky, but I'm too old to stop being cheeky. I mean, you know, in some ways, it, it, you, you feel, oh, you haven't got that long left. You can't keep beating around the bush. We actually need to look at the fruit of what a thing produces. Look at a movement. Let's go to another extreme. You do get what appear to be very good and maybe quite good sort of Christian groups that get very, very um, tight and strong on things. And then you begin to look at people. You think, these people are bound by fear. These people, are, everybody has to wear the same thing and they all make the same grunts and woos at the right time. They're, they're clearly under law. And you think, you've got to be real about this. You think, it might say it's very correct, but it's producing something I'm uneasy with in people's lives. It's it's perfectly valid to do that. And we have to do it all the time. Not in a holier-than-thou way, not in a a pompous, critical way, but in a genuinely godly way. We have to think, if this is good teaching, it will produce good fruit in the people's lives who are following it. Now, these sort of assessments are what 1 Timothy is there to help us make. And here's the really important thing, to help us assess ourselves. It's always so much easier to assess somebody else, but to assess ourselves. Are we receiving healthy, sound teaching? Are we responding correctly? Are we prone to be sidetracked into false doctrines or unsound teaching? Can we even tell the difference? Well, that's what this book, one of the things this book's endeavouring to help us. And I want to just take three things in contrast between false doctrine and sound doctrine, helping us to tell the difference. And the first thing I want to look at is novelty or conformity. Now that is rooted in the literal translation from the Greek of what's in verse 3. Because actually it, would, it should literally be translated... I command, sorry, command certain men not to teach novelties. So the first point that should be going up on the screen is novelty or conformity. And so we, we command certain people not to teach novelties. Now something new is always stimulating. But actually there is a real danger of seeking the eccentric and novel for its own sake. And that is a real danger with, uh, with all of us as characters. Sometimes we can get bored 
with what we're hearing. We can get bored with normal Christian life. Now, I just want to say, in all honesty, that can and does happen sometimes. Sometimes you think, I just, get, I just need something sparky, something new, something of a novelty to stir me up. And uh, it gets hard work, doesn't it, to persevere with just loving God, loving God's people, having faith in God, letting your life be fashioned by the Bible and just getting more holy, putting things right, worshipping God, going along to the small group, the community group, joining in the prayer of life of the church, sharing your testimony with your neighbour, getting people along to the Mark Ritchie meeting. You know, all of that can seem very mundane. And suddenly, this new thing is so much more exciting. It appeals to us because it's new, it's quirky. And there's a real subtle appeal sometimes that you feel, well, I'm the one that understands it and I can explain it to other people. And actually, I've noticed over the years that people, Christians can get into a new form of teaching and they get more zealous about converting other Christians to this new teaching than they are about converting unsaved people to Jesus. They are quite evangelistic for this new teaching, whereas it would be rather nice if they were more evangelistic for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world and to those who don't know Jesus. And we just have to be careful that we haven't sort of twisted our zeal off, off from what it meant to be persevering in church, persevering in building the church, and, and zealous for the name of Jesus out there with the unsaved. And we sort of turn those sort of things, away, turn from away from them and sort of get involved in this novelty. Now, in contrast, sound doctrine conforms, it says, verse 10 and 11, conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now, the word conform is not an attractive word. It's almost a dirty word today. Rebel? Well, that's cool. Conform? Oh, no. I don't want to conform to anything. I mean, you know, you just have to use the word conform and you can feel people going, not me. I'm a rebel, I'm, you know, I'll conform. So we need to, for example, we need to stop and say, hang on, it's not a bad word. It, what it means is to fit in with or be the same as. The teaching needs to fit in with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Or, in another phrase we looked at last week, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The teaching needs to fit in with the core gospel truths about Jesus. The glorious gospel, or the gospel that manifests God's glory, might be another translation. Wow, I want to conform to that. This isn't about conforming to some dull tradition, some dead idea. This is about conforming to the gospel about God's glory and blessing. Now, I want teaching that fits in with that. Teaching that fits in with Jesus and the glory of God. Amen? Don't ever say that's boring. You get through that and sort out why you feel bored. Don't look for novelty. Look again for a stirring in your heart about the glory of God and about the love of God in Jesus Christ and about the gospel of Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners. Sound teaching is rooted in and centred on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Sound teaching, healthy teaching, is rooted and centred on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which leads to a manifestation of the glory of God. 
Now that's good. That's how sound teaching should work. And out of that will come great blessing. Now in this very chapter, there are those sort of things mentioned. This is what he's talking about. Sound teaching fits in with this, that Jesus is our hope, verse 1. Jesus is our Lord, verse 2. That, verse 14, the grace of God is poured out abundantly along with faith and love in Christ Jesus. That, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the sort of thing we fit in with, with our teaching. Our teaching needs to fit with that. Our teaching needs to conform to this glorious gospel. So we're not looking for something just like for novelty value. We're looking for things that quicken our hearts about the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go on to the second thing. False teaching tends to generate myths and endless genealogies. Sound teaching, God's work, which is by faith. That's verse 4. Now, most false teaching of any variety, inside Christianity or outside of it, tends to major on minors. It is a characteristic of all false teaching that they get really off on one on very minor things. And they really do explore things that are very detailed and minor at great length. Long-winded explanations about obscure aspects of various bits of the Bible or ideas that have no substance in the Bible at all. Now, actually, what was going on here in Ephesus was focused around two things that Paul mentions, myths and endless genealogies. And I just looked up in a Bible sort of dictionary a little bit about this. That's all I did when I was preparing this and praying over it. I thought, I wonder what it says about myths and genealogies in this sort of um, dictionary thing about, about its meaning. As I read it, I was amazed at how similar it is to modern thinking. Postmodern, actually, not modern, postmodern thinking. 21st century Britain. It is absolutely amazing. It is so true that there is nothing new under the sun. I'm more or less quoting from a dictionary. I'm not quite quoting because that would be very boring to quote from a dictionary all morning. But just listen. The myths. The myths were of Greek origin. Stories fabricated in the mind over against real and actual stories. They were meant to be the vehicle for lofty truths. So the, the, the thing was that you have these stories, it doesn't, they're not true, they're made up, and they teach a, a, a noble sort of principle or lofty truth. Now, in the New Testament, in the Bible, these were seen as falsehoods, as lies. They're a bad thing, you don't need them. And one of the reasons is that they pretend to be true when they're not, or they give the impression of being true when they're not, and they cause confusion. And this is important, because Bible stories are true. They are real historical facts. This, Jesus did die on a cross. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus did die on a cross. Jesus did physically rise again. These were historical events. And it is quite a contemporary thing to say they are myths in a sort of neutral sense. Some theologians will say that. Say they are interesting stories. Of course, they're not really true, but they teach some wonderful ideas. Now, the New Testament's position is, no, they're either true or they're not true. And if they're not true, you should rubbish them and have nothing to do with them. But the stories we're telling you are true history facts. And you know, this is a very common battleground today, that people will try and be nice about Christianity as long as you don't say it's true and it's historically accurate. I can, that's been going on for years. 
I can remember when I was a school teacher, I used to teach mostly English, but I also taught religious studies. And I, in teaching religious studies, I taught up to O-level. And I had boys learning O-level religious studies. They only chose it because they didn't like chemistry. So that I didn't, they were doing, it was chemistry or RS. And they, many of them chose RS because they wanted an O-level. And so, we, I mean, it was a great opportunity to talk. And we used to have some good times, actually, about the gospel. But the syllabus I was teaching and the textbooks were very liberal theologically. And they were full of this sort of thing. This is one I am about to tell you. When Jesus walked on the water, of course he didn't walk on the water. He walked on a sandbank. He found a sandbank, which he walked on. When Peter got out of the boat, he got on the sandbank and then slipped off. That's when he sank. When Jesus fed the 5,000, of course he didn't miraculously multiply the food. The little boy shared his dinner and the example of the little boy with his five loaves and two fish was so impressive, Jesus said, look, this little boy's done it, why don't you lot do it? So everybody shared their dinner. So actually the little boy was better than Jesus really, wasn't he? He was the one who did it all because he shared his dinner. And Jesus said, look at this nice little lad shared his dinner. All of you share your dinner. And so that's absolute rubbish. Now that is saying, this is a nice myth that's built up around it, but it's got stuff in it. That Brothers and sisters, whoever you are, that is not the Bible. The Bible says, and it says it right clear in your face, actually, this happened, it's a miracle. You can accept it, you can reject it, but you don't mess about with it and turn it into a myth. You can say, I don't believe that Jesus walked on water. Fine, we can talk about that. We do. I believe Jesus walked on the water. I believe when Peter walked, he walked on the water. And I believe there are little hints that it was an unusual experience because as his faith began to fade, he started to sink. Have you ever imagined what happens? If you walk on the water, you don't start to sink, I shouldn't think, do you? You go, boop, and you're gone, you've sunk. So there was something dynamic going on that was really odd. (laughs) But it was a miracle. And it was a miracle had a massive implications. It was about Jesus, the Son of God. It was about faith and we got a whole sermon in it. But it wasn't just a myth. And they aren't just myths. Now this was something that was going on in the church here. They were mixing um, biblical stories and totally mythological other stories and they were treating them all the same. That's what goes on today. It's very, very contemporary. Now the genealogies, they were more Jewish. Quote my dictionary again. An obsession with ancient past traditions based on historical hints. These Jewish teachers claimed, this is interesting, that whether something occurred or not was unimportant. What one felt about it was what was important. Thus resorting to subjectivism without objective reality. That's me quoting a dictionary. You obviously saw that. I don't normally talk like that. So... Actually, what I thought was that was so 21st century, isn't it? If you think about it, whether something occurred or not was unimportant. What one felt about it was important. Oh, blow, that's just how we are. We thought that was new. We thought, oh, that's postmodern. We're first century. Hey, 21st century. Sorry. But actually, in the first century, same problem. It's a human problem. People get round the truth. And they say, look, actually, um, these people were particularly interested in little tiny historical facts in Jewish history. And they made a big deal out of it. And they said, actually, it's, it's not important whether it occurred or not, or the details. It's just what you feel about it, what you get out of it that's important. Well, Paul says that's rubbish. And it is rubbish. 
Myths and genealogies do not represent a belief based on historical fact. The Bible is based on historical fact. Christianity puts up that as a, as a challenge to the world. In modern Britain, this is a particular battleground. Because people will try, in our humanistic, postmodern world, to blend us all in and say, yeah, you know, religious ideas are nice, spirituality's nice, nice, yeah. Yeah, don't tell me it's true, it's just true for you. It's just a myth that you get a lot out of, and maybe I would if I listened to it properly. No, it's a fact. I believe there is one God. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe Jesus Christ died on a cross once historically, really and truly, for the sins of the whole world. And I believe the same Jesus who died three days later physically rose from the dead and is at this time at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And I believe he'll come back one day and I will see him. And until he comes back, I believe the only way you can get right with the Creator is by putting faith in Jesus Christ. And anyone from any race, any culture across the world can enjoy that opportunity, but the only way to enjoy it is through Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, that's true. That's true. That's not a myth. That's not a genealogy. I'm not interested in some little pokey detail somewhere to to try and sort of get absorbed in that, which is what these people were doing all the time. And it still happens today. We do not base our faith on myths. We do not base our faith on curious, unsubstantiated stories from church history. That happens too. People really get into stuff from the Celtic age. I think the Celtic church is probably brilliant. But the trouble is, it's about 1,500 years ago, and there's so much history since, that although I love the music, and I love reading about it, it's nice, but you can't almost tell what went on. And my faith isn't rooted to the fact that St. Boniface the Wonderful stood in the sea for three hours, and the walruses kept his legs warm, and stuff like that. I mean, it doesn't help my faith at all. I mean, that's not very far short of what several of the stories are. And that doesn't help my faith at all. My faith is rooted in the Bible. So it is nice to read church history, even revival history. Let's get a bit nearer to home. It's great to read it. Wow, look what, you know, Whitfield did or Calvin. Yeah, it's great. But this is where my faith's rooted. You know, sometimes that has mixed blessing. You think, why on earth can't I stand up and convert 10,000 miners in about half an hour? I don't know, like Whitfield did. But it's God, isn't it? And, and my faith is not in seeing that happen again. It's in Jesus and the gospel. It's so easy to get deflected into all sorts of little bits and bypaths of history and stories. What are we after? Well, Paul, let's put it more positively. The bottom line, it's in verse 4. He wants to promote God's work, which is by faith. I love it. What we're interested in is God's work, which is by faith. Now, Gordon Fee, very helpfully, sort of expands the phrase God's work. And he said it it could mean God's administration. This is the way Gordon Fee says it, it reads. It should read like God's arrangement for people's salvation. He's interested in God's arrangement for people's redemption. That is the bottom line of what we're after. We're after what God has done to redeem people. And it works through faith. So actually, God's work, God's rolled his sleeves up to to win the, the lost to Christ. God's rolled his sleeves up to talk about Jesus. God's work is about telling the world that Jesus Christ died for them and loves them, that God loves them. 
Telling the world that there is hope, that you don't have to go on in your sin. There is another way to live. There is a salvation. God's work, which is by faith. That's what we want to promote. Paul says, they're promoting controversies. I want to promote God's work, which is by faith. Don't you love it? I love the simplicity of it. That's what we want to promote. So sound doctrine, I would argue, is promoting things like this. Preaching the gospel, building the church, extending the kingdom of God. And extending it into individuals' lives, family life, community life. It must, in the end, boil down to that. Now, I think that may ask serious questions of some things that Christians get very absorbed in. Does it extend the gospel? Does it preach the gospel? Does it build church? Does it extend the kingdom into people's lives and change their living? We need to be careful and challenge some of the things we can get very absorbed with. Well, thirdly, finally, there's another contrast. It's got controversies and meaningless talk or love from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In the end, the test of a teaching is what is it producing in people's lives. False teaching promotes controversies, arguments, confusion, and it promotes meaningless talk, endless discussions and speculation. Boy, have I seen that over the years. Oh, boy, have I seen that. I mean... You know, the numbers of tapes I've been given over the years about, you know, the Antichrist 666, what's happening in Israel, what's happening, you know, who this and that is. I've had whole series given to me. I've had computer printouts when we used to have those sort of things that are about 10 feet long with all the sort of, you know, timing when this is going to happen there and that's going to happen there and, and, you know, when Jesus is going to come back. And you think all the speculation that goes on. And I would have to say the meaningless talk esoteric discussions about things that only a few people know about, analysing Bible code books, the rankings of demons, which rank demon are we dealing with, uh, what's their, you know, where did he get it all from? Okay, little hints in the Bible, but you don't make a whole seminar out of the ranks of demons, do you? Where did you get that from? And, you know, I bet you some of you say, well, I've got to tell you where we get it from. Yeah, well, you'll have trouble. I can get an idea or two, but... Come on, why are we so obsessed with these things, these details? Christians seem to go off on one so easily. Does it produce what it's meant to produce? Good teaching is meant to produce. Look what Paul writes. It's quite telling. I think it's quite interesting altogether. He doesn't say the goal of our instruction is an accurate Christology. If I could say it, that means to accurately believe the right things about Jesus. He doesn't say it's an orthodox theology of the atonement. Now, I don't think those things are wrong, of course. You need an orthodox theology of the atonement. You need to know why Jesus died and what happened when he died. You need to know who Jesus was. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't say that in his answer to these controversies. He says the goal of our faith, is the goal of our instruction is not that everybody's got an orthodox Christology, not that everybody's got an orthodox theology of the atonement. That's not my goal. My goal is love which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I am not saying that those things are unimportant that I've just referred to. What I am saying is, if you have an orthodox theology of the atonement, it will result in love from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Correct teaching produces those things in people's lives. 
If you understand properly who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for Jesus to be God and man, and you do need to understand those things, the goal isn't you understand them. The goal is they will produce love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The real bottom line is that. It's not getting your ducks, theological ducks in a row. It's not saying, I've actually intellectually understood it all. You do need to understand it, but that's not the end. That's the beginning of getting to the real goal, which is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what real sound doctrine always aims to produce and should produce and will produce. It will produce a growth in practical Christian love. What a word. That's what it's about. It's not about a growth of knowledge, though knowledge is a part towards the goal. It's a growth in love. That's what it's about. What sort of love? God's love, agape love, selfless love, love that's strong. Love that is, in the Bible's terms, the fulfilment of the law. Romans 13, verse 10. Love which is at the heart of the two greatest commandments, as Jesus said. Love which in 1 Corinthians 13 we're told, if we don't have it, all our words are like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Whether they're tongues or or English. All our actions are nothing without love. Now, this is the Bible. It's not just a sentimental idea. It's saying that in the end, the goal is we become people who've got love in our hearts. God love. Self-sacrificing care for others. And that love comes out of a purified heart. Now, how do you have a purified heart? Well, you need it cleansed and renewed by the Holy Spirit, which is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about a clean heart that you become a new creation and something changes inside. And if it does, it will evidence in love on the outside. A good conscience. What's that mean? Well, you know you are forgiven all your sins. What a security. Have you got a good conscience? You ought to have. You can have. You can have because you know all your sins are forgiven. You are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Conscience is sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, you may still fail God sometimes. You can have a good conscience because you can come back and confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you sin. You can keep short accounts on the basis of the blood of Jesus. There is no reason for you not to have a good conscience. In fact, your conscience can now be a tool, the Holy Spirit prompts it, to keep you on track with God. A good conscience is a very important part of the Christian's life. And if your conscience is uneasy and unhappy, you should never violate it. You shouldn't just steam on and ignore your uneasy conscience. You've got to step back and say, why have I got an uneasy conscience? Am I disobeying God? Is the Holy Spirit warning me? Am I just a bit funny? Do I need to educate my conscience, you see? Sometimes you do. Conscience is more like a sort of uh, hardware of the computer. It needs the right software. You need the Bible. to. The conscience is a wonderful thing God's given us, but it needs to be educated by the Word of God and by the Spirit. So you may have a neurosis, neuro, neurotic sort of fear. You may need it healed and helped. You may have a fear rooted in a misunderstanding of God. So you do need to be careful, but you shouldn't ignore an uneasy conscience. A good conscience is the right of every believer. You should be standing secure 
with a purified heart and a good conscience before God. And be able, as you can, to exercise sincere faith. What's that mean? Genuine trust in God. That you trust in God. I'm going to trust in God. Yeah, you do. You trust in God. You don't sing it just like that. You just, I'm going to. You're going to do it? Good, do it. I'm going to do it. But that's what we're meant to do. We're trusting in God. It's not a bad thing to sing. I mean, I'm just mucking around with the American bit. But it, it's, it's right that we're going to trust in God. That I love out of a heart that's been renewed and refreshed and cleaned up by the Holy Spirit, about a con- out of a conscience that's been cleansed and I keep clean as I keep in, in good relationship with God and educate it with the Word and renew it with the Spirit, and I, I also move out of my trust in God. I genuinely trust God. Now, I struggle at times like you do. Sometimes you, you don't understand what God's doing and you go through little fears and doubts. But fundamentally, I have, and I hope you have, a sincere faith. I genuinely believe that God is for me. I believe what God says in the Bible. Now, out of that will come real Christian love. The ability to handle all the funny things that come your way. The ability to forgive the ability to be patient, the ability to go the extra mile and all the other things that actually that love works out in. Sound doctrine then really brings these things. Sound doctrine will teach you about a purified heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And out of that will draw the love of God which will be shed abroad in your heart. You know, I can honestly say I pray for a growth of that across the church here and throughout the world. Whenever I'm teaching anywhere and I will be having the privilege of teaching in India at the end of the month and other places and things and here and other churches although I I really do want to teach a myriad things I enjoy going and you know you've heard me going to all sorts of things in the end this is the goal that Christians get secure in the love of God themselves begin to love others and that their hearts are pure their, their consciences are good and their faith is growing and sincere that must be what it's about, mustn't it? And, and yes, I do want you to understand who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. I will take a whole day teaching on the Trinity, I do. But the purpose is not information. The purpose is that you are even more delighted in God. Your faith grows. Your conscience feels even more secure. Your heart feels warmed and purified by the truth. And you love, love God and love men and women. That's what it's about, the two greatest commandments, that we, we love the Lord our God and we love our neighbour. And it comes out of these things. That's what the end of the law is, the fulfilment of the law. And perhaps another way of putting it that we've looked at already, that we promote God's work, which is by faith. That's the goal of what we do. I mean, it is nice to, to learn lots of things. I, I actually do enjoy, um, you know, quite detailed books and reading complicated things. I do enjoy them. Marion will tell you that. She's amazed at some of the things I read. Sometimes I think, boring book, what's he doing reading that? Silly man. But I do quite enjoy those things. But in the end, we mustn't get rocked around them. If it's not producing this, it's not really much use. Amen? We want good, we want, I'll get it right, love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. And overall, as a church, we are going to promote God's administration of redemption to the world through faith. Amen? By preaching the gospel and building the church.